1: Assisted living communities have been hit hard by the COVID crisis. Coming up in the second half of the podcast, we check in with someone who runs senior living communities and find out if new money from the federal government will be enough to keep those places safe. But first, it feels like years, but we've just reached the six-month mark in the COVID crisis here in Illinois. It's as good a time as any to take a closer look at how the pandemic has fundamentally changed the state. From budget busting to unemployment, hospital protocols to the restaurant industry... A new story out in Crane Chicago business tracks how much has changed in such a short amount of time. The writers of the story are A.D. Quigg and Stephanie Goldberg. A.D., this is almost an oral history of the last six months. Who did you talk to for this article?
0: We spoke with uh, as many government leaders as we could. Um, Parra, Governor Pritzker's chief of staff, Governor Pritzker, um, the heads of the Chicago and Illinois uh, Departments of Public Health, uh, folks at the Illinois Restaurant Association, Illinois manufacturers. Stephanie spoke with a lot of folks in the healthcare field. I spoke with Damon Jones, an economist at the University of Chicago. Uh, We tried to get as many folks as we could from as many different industries as we could just to kind of get a sense of, you know, this has touched every industry, every business, every person's life, and tons and tons of families who were impacted by someone in their family who was infected, someone who died, or living and working under kind of the threat of the infection.
1: When you look at the timeline of this, Stephanie, and you see state and local officials who had to respond quickly to this emergency at the point, which everyone was, including them, were wildly unprepared for. What were the pivotal moments in Illinois? When you look back at the six months, what were the tipping points for this pandemic? You
2: know, it's funny. um, Amy and I put a timeline together really before we started getting to get going on this because we wanted to make sure that we weren't forgetting things like it, I think it, we even wrote in the story like March was a whirlwind like it, it's so crazy to think back at everything that happened in a fairly short period of time and um from the time of the first confirmed case on, J- on January 24th, excuse me, until probably like March 9th, um, when Governor Pritzker issued the disaster declaration, um, it didn't seem like life had changed that much. And then all of a sudden, in, in that moment, everything was different. A couple things happened that week. Uh, March 13th, schools were ordered to close. You know, March 11th, the St. Patrick's Day parades were canceled, which or I think it, at the time they were postponed. You know, everyone was thinking, well, maybe maybe we'll have these soon. Travel restrictions led to overcrowding at O'Hare. You know, I rem- everyone remembers the scenes from that day. So March was was just sort of this nutty month where everything happened so quickly. And then I think by the time April rolled around, everyone was sort of getting comfortable with the stay-at-home order and relatively speaking, I suppose. But it was a big few weeks that we had in there.
1: It's amazing to think about, too, to think six months, because I remember in, in March myself when the St. Patrick's Day parade was canceled and schools were closed. You know, everyone was talking about, uh, what, May? <laughs> May 1st right. as, as an right. opportunity. Uh, August was a, was a, was millions of years away. Uh, but to think that we've had uh, the, the six months that we've had, it, it almost felt like we weren't prepared for this to be this long, eighty Well,
0: and one of the startling parts of putting the timeline together was seeing how quickly the cases grew. One thing Dr. Allison Arwady, the head of the Chicago Department of Public Health, told me, in epidemiology, yes, we care about the case count, but we care even more about what that curve looks like. And we were seeing an exponential rise in cases. So that the day the St. Patrick's Day parade was canceled, there were 25 cases in the state. And by the time um, The stay-at-home order was extended in Illinois on March 31st. There were 6,000 cases Mm. in Illinois. It really ramped up quickly, and those first weeks were, I, I don't know how many times we heard and we said the terms bending the curve. Folks were trying to avoid what we started to see happening in New York City. We started that work on the McCormick Place alternate care facility that we ultimately didn't really end up using that much, but we were terrified that we would have hospitals and clinics overrun or perhaps what happened in New York, where you had people, right. so many calls for service that people couldn't even get an ambulance and many people were dying in their homes.
1: Stephanie, you, you cover a lot of uh, health care issues for the, for the state of Illinois for, for cranes. I, I think about almost the way that Illinois has changed forever when you think about the protocols for hospitals and healthcare when it comes to COVID-19. At the beginning, the storyline was really about hospital preparedness, uh, PPE or lack of, uh, trying to get ventilators. All the kind of things to get us quickly prepared for this emergency. As we look at how it's played out over six months' time, how has that story changed and, and how has the healthcare facilities and the hospitals in our area evolved?
2: They're still evolving. Um, and this is one of those things when you ask hospital CEOs now that question, um, they sort of chuckle. Although there's a lot that's still in flux at the moment because I think a lot of folks are preparing right now for this potential second wave that we have been hearing a lot about that's going to coincide with flu season. So, the stockpiles of PPE are continuing to grow, um, so that is very much still a thing. What hospitals look like in, in the future is, are likely going to change. I mean, uh, the negative pressure rooms that help isolate the virus. Some hospitals have the capacity to like change their emergency rooms into to those units. That's going to be a a bigger thing in the future. The ability to flex up and down as you know, ICUs need to expand. So there are lots of changes to facilities as well as just protocols. I think it's going to be a while before visitors are allowed in hospitals again. You know, certainly not this fall. So the way healthcare is delivered inevitably is going to have to change. Um, But what that looks like is still sort of remains to be seen.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the other industries affected because we have seen so much. Uh, devastation when it comes to uh, our industries and our economy here in the state of Illinois, from restaurants, as we've talked about over and over ad nauseum on this program, but also all the others where we saw mass layoffs and, and record unemployment in the last six months.
0: Right. We spoke with uh, Mark Densler, who's the head of the Illinois Manufacturers Association, and you know, part of the issue with COVID was also just changing consumer demands. So we had a lot of industries shifting to make things that they hadn't made before, or Um, turning off profitable lines to help um, Illinois either with PPE or with testing. Um, Mark Densler said, you know, AbbVie started making uh, reagents to help with testing on their lines. You know, you start with 2,000 a week, then it was 5,000 a week. Illinois could not have gotten up to the massive number of tests that were now running daily without that. Abbott made that controversial rapid test that was so promoted by the White House. Um, You had other companies like Richards Wilcox, they were a metal shelving company. Nobody was buying metal shelving companies. And they flipped down, flipped over in a matter of days and began making hospital beds mm-hmm. for the McCormick Place site, which were treated with kind of that antimicrobial spray. Tons of liquor manufacturers started making hand sanitizers. There were people that were like, well, I can't make any one thing, but I can make certain parts. So you had people switch to making um, ventilator parts. And you also just had massive demand at grocery stores because folks weren't going out to eat quite as much. Um, early on, we had that run on toilet paper, mm-hmm. on right. cleaning products. Um, folks in the shipping industry had to work with the state and national department of transportation to get um, shipping modifications to basically allow for them to ship more for workers to work longer hours and for uh, heavier loads to be carried. It's And it's still it's still evolving, you know. Like we still have a lot of people grocery shopping instead of going to restaurants. Of course, we have this completely different, um, shifting landscape for restaurants here because the city keeps kind of opening up and then pulling slightly back when we see infection rates change. And we
1: haven't yet even figured out how this is all going to work when the weather's not nice, when they, when you can't do outdoor patios, which will be coming up. I would assume right after (laughs) the way it works in Chicago at any time. But that's something that we haven't figured out yet. And Stephanie, when we think about some of the other things we haven't figured out and we from education, and remote learning to uh, we were talking about just about how prepared everybody is for a second wave. There are still a lot of unanswered questions, even six months in.
2: Yeah, I think something that we are not talking about enough, although these conversations are, you know, continuing in earnest, but the technology divide right now is a really big issue. I read a great story this morning um, from Kaiser Health News about how that impacts uh, nursing home residents. You know, if you have Wi-Fi and you have technology, you can communicate with your family. If you don't, you cannot. That obviously um, is a big issue when we when we talk about e-learning and remote work as well. So, um, and also telemedicine, um, like if you need to see your doctor, but it's you're a high risk uh, patient, and it's not safe for you to go to a facility. Like, do you have the means to connect with them remotely? So that is something that I think uh, that conversation is going to need to continue as we head into the winter months.
1: Yeah, and Ad, we'll have more conversations about how this is budget busting and how uh, our municipalities across the state of Illinois, including the state house down downstate, have. I've just thrown tons of money at this, and there will be a bill due at some point when it comes to massive deficits. But when I think about what is the future, you know, there's so many different areas that have still not been able to figure out which is the right way to go. And as you talk to all these civic leaders and these business leaders in this crane chicago business piece, are they optimistic? Are they uh, pessimistic? What's the vibe you're getting from everybody about what's next when, when we look forward on this COVID-19 pandemic? I
0: think it's a lot of kind of continuing to buckle down. One kind of really impactful moment for me during all of this was um, speaking with Governor Pritzker. I said, you know, 7,300 people have died in Illinois in the past six months, and you are the person with the most power in the state. Have you had time to grieve? And he paused for a really long time, and he said, no. And I don't think really any, anyone has had time to grieve because every day there's something new popping up. And something Dr. Arwady told me was, you know, initially she told me, this is the first quarter of the COVID fight this past six months. And then I asked her about it again. And she said, you know, it's not even really the first quarter because when we do get a vaccine, that might be uh, a two treatment vaccine, meaning people have to go once, and then they have to go again. Mm. And it will take at least a year, possibly two, maybe three to fully roll that vaccine right. out And then we don't know, number one, how effective it is. It might be 60% effective. So this might not be we eradicate COVID. It might be we figure out a new way to live with it uh, day in and day out. But there's also people, you know, striking a hopeful note saying we have done some really incredible work on equity to house the homeless, to release a lot of people from the Cook County Jail, to bring food to communities that might not have had it in the past. So the hopeful folks are saying maybe there are some solutions to human problems that we have solved during this pandemic that will last. Yeah.
1: Well, great story. uh, ChicagoBusiness.com is the website. Crane Chicago Business Reporters, Aidy Quigg and Stephanie Goldberg put it together. Uh, Appreciate you guys coming on with us today and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: After weeks of lobbying, the assisted living industry finally got the White House's attention. President Trump pledged $5 billion in aid for U.S. nursing homes and assisted living facilities. It's no secret that older people and the facilities they live in have been hit hard by COVID-19. Some stats even suggest that deaths in nursing homes account for more than 40% of all fatalities in the U.S. And here in Illinois, that number has even been higher, hanging around 50%. So this new money comes with new testing and trading protocols. But will it be enough? Gus Noble is president of Chicago Scots, an organization that runs senior living facilities in the western suburbs. Gus, welcome to Reset.
3: Hi, Justin. How are you?
1: Good to talk with you. Right, so what do you make of the new additional funding coming from the White House? What impact it going to have?
3: Well, it's obviously every single uh, penny, every single support we can get is, is uh, appreciated, and we need uh, all the help we can get. We've relied on um, sources both inside and outside our community to help us Essential items of PPE and testing, and so we're we're grateful to to whomsoever gets us the, su- the support. I'm encouraged that everybody is taking this as seriously as they can because these are are the most vulnerable citizens among mm. us, as the people who live in long-term care. And I've I've said from day one of this crisis that the best way to protect the health and safety of the people living in long-term care is to protect health and safety the people working in long-term care. So all this is, is, a, is a great move in the right direction.
1: Yeah. When I talked to you back in March, you were part of a, a move in, uh, to try and get the governor's attention, to try and get the president's attention, to say that you needed more resources when it comes to fighting COVID-19 at long-term facilities in, in the state and in this area. Were your concerns heard? And do you feel at this point that you got the necessary resources you needed?
3: They're certainly being heard. Whether they're uh, heard at all levels, I, I, I can't say yet. Um, but what I can say is talk locally here in Illinois. IDPH, uh, the governor, Dr. Ezekiel, and her team at IDPH have been incredible in their uh, support, their guidance, uh, and their leadership. Um, we, we committed to what I believe is the most proactive vigorous model of testing in uh, the state. We test everyone every week on our campus, whether you work here, live here, or you're coming to to provide a a service. If you step foot inside the building, you're gonna be tested. And that's allowed us, uh, now we're entering 14 weeks of uh, weekly testing. This has allowed us to be guided by certainty rather than speculation. And I credit Governor Pritzker and IDPH for that incredible service.
1: Gus, what does life look like behind the locked doors of senior living communities? We've, you know, we can't visit, we can't go in. So how's it changed?
3: Well, certainly here at Caledonia Senior Living and I know through my uh, professional friendships with the other communities in the area, we've we've really worked hard uh, pre-COVID to be guided by feelings of home and family and not institutional as uninstitutional as possible, and obviously, when you go into a restricted type of um, lockdown, it's harder to be um, to be focused on home. However, what we we've done is assemble our staff and have regular meetings with them. And I've said to them, one silver lining uh, about having locked our front doors is that we are in charge. We can make mm-hmm. decisions about what happens within the community. We're all in this together we're only as good as the protection that we offer to one another. So I'm making a commitment to you that I will be as careful and cautious as I can be when I'm outside the community and inside the community, and I'm asking you to make the same commitment. The other commitment we're making is if we cannot um, be as um, focused on feelings of home and family in the general uh, uh, operation of our, our campuses, then we have to dignify human interaction even more than we did previously. Yeah, right. So our staff are being incredible. They are just um, stepping up in ways that are truly heroic. I-, I see them make sure residents are comfortable and want to be comforted. I, I'm- I see them um, using what technologies we have currently to bring life enrichment activities and exercise into resident rooms um meals and so on, and where we've, we've used this, this new in-house TV system that we have, and, and others are doing the same, to, to stream content that shows that there is a connection, even though the doors are locked, mm. to, to the outside world.
1: Gus, uh, so much of what you do, and as you talk about home, is, is not just managing the people that live inside, but also the families that live outside. Yep. How does the relationship evolve? with the families on the outside who don't have access like they had before to their loved ones on the inside?
3: We immediately started to see how we could um, create opportunities for families to connect using technologies like FaceTime and so on, but beyond that uh, we tried to look at window time for for families to connect. Fortunately we have this campus which is in the middle of the forest preserve with this beautiful landscape around us and walking paths and so on. And it allowed us to to, uh, create moments for families to come for picnics outside resident rooms. One moment, it just blew me away. Um, We're we're a Scottish community here. And um, pre-COVID, we had a dance studio and these Highland dancers would come in every week, rehearse and, and use the dance studio. But in that process, they got to know our residents in really close ways. The moment the lockdown happened, they created resident-to-dancer pen-pal uh, friendships and writing and so on. But one Tuesday afternoon, I heard the strains of bagpipes playing outside the campus, and I looked, and outside every resident window, there was a dancer performing mm-hmm. for their residents. And 14 weeks into this, uh, they're doing it every Tuesday, come rain or shine. Wow. And it's, it's just an incredible thing that this community is doing here in North Riverside, but I see this type of thing in long-term care all over the country.
1: Gus, when I think about the obviously the emotion that goes with that with trying to, to keep connection uh, as a priority, I also think that, you know, the, the stats that I read at the beginning of the, of the segment just about 40% uh, nationwide uh, deaths occur in nursing homes and long term care facilities, uh, higher here in Illinois. How do you deal with that as somebody who is at the forefront, but also the fears of of both the people who live in the facilities and and also families that that are concerned about their loved ones that are are in your facilities?
3: Well, you you cannot be too careful. Going into this crisis, the administrator here, Chris Cortez is her name, I have such incredible admiration for her. She, She said to us in a very calm way, if overreact to this crisis, we will probably never know. If we underreact, we will know immediately. Mm -hmm. So we created systems of hand hygiene, screening, physical distancing. We put testing at the heart of our protocol and we also um, created a time and symptoms based monitoring approach. This allowed us to, to really give an assurance to the people who live and work here that we are taking this incredibly seriously. And we have in our hands an obligation to deliver care to everyone, to relieve the stress and distress of everyone who lives and works here. And that comes in many different forms. We've been mindful from day one of physical health, but we're also thinking of social, emotional, spiritual uh, and mental health, the staff and the residents. Um, And I should say that in in this era of civil unrest, when the uh, protests turned to some rioting and so on, I thought it was important, that again, that that we as a staff got together and we recognised that the dignification of relationships weren't just focused on the residents, this was staff to staff. And we had an obligation to recognise that the black and brown members of our team were under Mm. greater stress and greater threat than us. So we wanted to say to them that behind the locked doors, this is our opportunity to create a safe and dignified space for one another.
1: And that seems to be the the mantra here: the safe and dignified space. When you look at the evolution, we just talked with Crane, Chicago Business, right before talking to you. Just this idea of of the evolution of of you know industries from from March to August and beyond. What has to evolve when it comes to the long t- long term care industry?
3: I know we'll be one of the last to open up once COVID. Is- done. If you look at the governor's uh, plan of reopening, Restore Illinois, um, phase five is when the the plan says COVID-19 is defeated. Created a plan here at Caledonia Senior Living that is in lockstep. It will never get ahead of uh, Restore Illinois, but it's certainly being informed and guided by it. And I I wrote in the plan, COVID-19 is defeated. And I have to say that the the lift that gave me of thinking of a world beyond the restriction that we're in was very inspirational. So we, we shared this plan amongst our, our families that uh, are, are related to residents, our staff, our board, our community. And and by the way, we host regular, since lockdown, we thought it was important that families had an opportunity to connect to and engage with with staff at all levels. So we have... Um, regular Zoom calls where we have all of our department heads and families have an opportunity to ask us questions Mm. about life, about our operations, about our protocols and protections, as well as the the reopening plan. And the first step of that plan, the first step to getting back to um, some type of normality, had to focus in in all of our minds on getting families physically uh, connected with With the residents, and so we created outside, um, socially or physically distanced uh, visits, um, with supported by and supervised by members of the team, and that has really helped um, the the residents and families feel that they they not only are relying on us for 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 safety, but for for well being in many different ways.
1: It's Gus Noble. He's the president of Chicago Scots, an organization that runs senior living facilities in the western suburbs. Gus, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Please
3: be well, Justin.
1: And that's today's Reset. For the latest, most accurate info on the COVID-19 crisis, head to 915-WBEZ or to wbez.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you here tomorrow.